This week we have another double parsha, Parshas Achare and Parshas Kedoshim. Parshas Achare has 80 verses. It spans chapter 16 through 18 of the book of Leviticus. We have 28 mitzvahs in this week's parsha, and it begins immediately in the aftermath of the death of the sons of Aaron that we read several weeks ago in Parshas Shemini. So the parsha begins with an instruction that the Holy of Holies is sacrosanct, you can't walk in there willy-nilly, only at special times, only special people, and only with special requirements, sacrifices, clothing, etc. Only then is the high priest allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. But it is interesting that the Parsha begins with a certain preamble. Hashem spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons. Now, the connection is obvious. The two sons of Aaron, they entered the sanctuary, they entered the mission of the tabernacle unauthorized, and therefore that's the warning. So Rashi tells us right away that there is a powerful lesson. Moses is conveying a warning to Aaron, don't walk into the Holy of Holies in an unauthorized manner because you will die. And that warning becomes very visceral, very tangible, very palpable when he says, oh, your sons, they did that, they died, and therefore you should not do that because if you do that, you will die. Now, it's interesting, like we mentioned, we read this on Yom Kippur and there's a famous teaching in the Zohar that tells us that by invoking the death of Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, it can help us in the atonement process. Uh, the Zohar tells us if someone is saddened by the death of Aaron's two sons, the two righteous sons of Aaron, and you cry over them on Yom Kippur, that is a means, that's a tool to be forgiven yourself for all your sins. And unlike Aaron, none of your sons will die in your lifetime. And I think, you know, more, more broadly speaking, there are some very valuable lessons here in this narrative and in this preamble related to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, of course, is the day that we orient around repentance, around uh, self-examination, self-reflection, contemplation, to figure out what we did, what we did wrong, how we can rectify it, how we can atone, expiate ourselves from our sins. Of course, we have the confession that we do, and the entire day is oriented around evoking the genuine feelings of sorrow and regret over our misdeeds. And it's important to remember on Yom Kippur that our actions, our, our spiritual actions, they, they matter and they create realities. And a sin is something where someone creates a barrier between them and the Almighty. And on Yom Kippur, we talk about the death of the sons of Aaron. And, you know, they were righteous, as we mentioned. And in fact, they were destined to be the heirs to Moses and Aaron, to be the leaders and the high priest of the people, and yet they made a slight misstep, what we would think is, they sinned, and what happened? They were immediately and irrevocably punished. And I think there's no greater display, or arguably there's no greater display of the realness of sin and the realness of the spiritual realm than reading about Nadav and Avihu and their tragic and perhaps untimely demise. And us reading that today is a very powerful experience that the spiritual realm is real, it's tangible, and it matters. And that's, of course, one of the foundational emotions that will help us have a meaningful and successful repentance on Yom Kippur. 
Now, broadly speaking, what's the general idea of not walking into the holy of holies often? So Rashi tells us that because there is a cloud that appears upon the ark and the holy of holies, in effect, God is always present in the holy of holies, and therefore it's a very special designated holy place. It can't be walked into just without anything. It has to be done with the proper time, the proper place, the proper individual. Now, perhaps we could we could add the Ramban all the way back in the beginning of the instruction related to the tabernacle. He told us that the mission of the tabernacle is an, essentially an extension of Sinai. It's a portable Sinai. Just at Sinai, there was this incredible climax of revelation of God and closeness that that engendered. The presence of God was present and felt by all at Sinai, and we read many times. In, in Exodus chapter 20, that the mortal men couldn't handle it. They couldn't even come close to the mountain. They couldn't touch the mountain. They certainly couldn't ascend the mountain. If they did, they would die because this was a touch point between heaven and earth. This is a time where God's presence, so to speak, departed from the heavenly realm, or to, to a certain extent, obviously, and came here. And that was present at Sinai, but that's also present in the tabernacle. God's there, and therefore, unless a person is in the right frame of mind, and in the right situation, and granted the permission to enter, they can't walk in without suffering very dire consequences. And there's another point here that we see in the literature on the subject, that when someone is too familiar with something, they lose their sensitivity to it. It becomes it becomes callous. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there was a law when someone walked into the temple itself, they had to enter from one gate and had to exit from a different gate. Why? Because if they were to enter and exit from the same gate, they'll develop familiarity with the temple and they'll lose their sense of novelty. And we want people to have a, spe- a specialness, a special feeling that they attribute towards the temple. And once they get too familiar, too comfortable with it, it loses its potency. And in fact, in the aftermath of the golden calf, we read how Moses took the tent of meaning and he pitched it outside of the camp. And perhaps we could say that the reason why the catastrophe of the golden calf happened is because there was a l- loss of reverence for God. It was amidst the camp, and it became kind of a thing that we're used to, accustomed to. We got acculturated to spirituality. It didn't actually resonate as deeply and therefore, that allowed us to fall into the traps of the golden calf. Regularity, monotony, routine, habit, those things are the enemy of spiritual sublimity. At the epicenter of holiness, the holy of holies, you don't enter at all times. If you do, you will die. That's what Aaron is told. And only once a year, only the high priest, and only under very specific conditions. Now, from verse 4, uh, throughout the rest of the chapter, we're told the various Yom Kippur services. And in fact, today, of course, we don't have a temple yet. But if you look at the Musaf services that we do on Yom Kippur, it's very much oriented around trying to reenact, at least via the liturgy, via the prayer, to reenact what the high priest did on Yom Kippur. So the first thing that we read here is that he shall don a sacred linen tunic, linen breeches should be upon his flesh, linen sash, linen turban, so he's wearing all the linen garments. Of course, we read about the vestments of the high priest and the special eight garments that he wore, that only he wore, and they're made out of gold or 
there's a lot of gold in those eight garments. And here we're told that when he washed in the Holy of Holies, he cannot wear his eight special garments of the high priest. He has to wear different ones, the linen ones, the white ones. Why can the high priest not wear the gold garments into the Holy of Holies? So Rashi tells us, because they have gold. And gold portends or evokes the golden calf. And that cannot be on display when he's entering the Holy of Holies and he's there to request forgiveness. In the words of Rashi, a prosecutor cannot become an advocate. The high priest, together with everything that he's doing and that he is personifying on that day, on Yom Kippur, is there to bring about forgiveness for the Jewish people. If part of his persona is gold, gold connotes the golden calf, and therefore that's not something, that's a prosecutor, that's something which is going to arouse judgment of the Jewish people, that cannot be used to arouse forgiveness for the Jewish people. In fact, there's a widespread an ancient custom to wear white garments. Even today in Yom Kippur, of course, we wear the kittel. Some people are accustomed to wear white yarmulkes and white suits and white everything. And that's, of course, stems from this idea, the idea of purity, the idea of becoming cleansed from our sins. And we don't wear gold. Uh, in fact, women have a custom to not wear jewelry as well. All this is because we don't want to, we want to distance ourselves so much from the golden calf and from anything that could potentially evoke it, bring it up and uh, use that existential sin of the Jewish people to somehow sully our pursuit of forgiveness. Now, it's interesting, the Kohen Gadol high priest, it's not just on Yom Kippur that he has a special role, it's every day. And in fact, we we read in the Talmud, we talked about it a few weeks ago, how the garments, the eight garments, the gold garments, do bring about forgiveness and atonement for the Jewish people. But that's only outside the Holy of Holies. Once he goes into the peak, the apex of holiness, there has to be a certain commensurate rise in eschewing of any spiritual blemishes. Yes, the high priest can wear gold outside the Holy of Holies, but once he goes there, once he reaches that point, there cannot be any indication of the golden calf. Now, the process is, Rashi tells us, on Yom Kippur, there's going to be a lot of changing of clothing because every time he, the Kohen Gadol walks into the Holy of Holies, he does it a total of four times. He switches into white garments and then he has to bathe in the, in the mikvah and the ritual waters. He has to clean his hand, hands and his feet and then get changed. And they get when he walks out of the Holy of Holies, he has to change back into the gold garments. So that happens uh, multiple times, changing clothing back and forth. Now, we're told what he should bring with him. He has uh, various sacrifices, two goats, the one ram, and of course there is the sin offering, the bull. And the parsha delineates what he has to do with all these various sacrifices. So first, in verse 6, we read that he brings near, he offers his own sin offering bull to provide atonement for himself and for his household. There's going to be some layers here in the atonement process. The first individuals that need to be atoned for is the priest himself, and then he moves on to the rest of his brethren and the rest of the Jewish people. And the idea being is before someone could be a effective advocate for someone else, they got to make sure that their house is in order, their Dutch are in order, and they are clean of sin. So before he's going to stand before God in his role 
as representative of the Jewish people, he has to first make sure that he himself and his family are cleansed from any sin. And then the next thing we read about is that he takes the two goats, the two male goats, which are identical, and he brings them to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he does a lottery. And he takes, there's there's two wooden or subsequently golden lotteries, and he has to mix them up in a box. And on one of them, it says, for God. And on the other one, it says, for Azazel. And this is a really interesting procedure here that they would do in the tabernacle and, of course, subsequently in the temple. And they did it for years where one of the identical goats was brought as an atonement sacrifice to the Jewish people. And the second goat was taken outside of Jerusalem to a far place, to a cliff, and chopped off a cliff. And by the way, the term scapegoat, it, to my knowledge, derives from this idea that this other goat essentially was a lottery. He wasn't guilty necessarily. But all the sins of the Jewish people are going to be placed upon that other goat and it's going to be chucked off a mountain. It's a very obviously unusual procedure and we have to, of course, delve into what's the meaning behind that. Now, incidentally, Talmud tells us that during the righteous reigns of the high priests, they would always have the lot that said, for God, come up in their right hand. Again, they stick their hands in with the right hand to put out one, pull out one of the lotteries with the left hand. They pull out a second one, and then they place it upon the heads of those animals, of those goats. During the reign of Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon HaTzadik is the second, the early second temple era high priest, for 80 consecutive years, the lot that said, for God, came up in his right hand. And that, of course, is an indication that the Almighty is happy with him and with the Jewish people. And eventually we're going to read, of course, the, the, the Parsha is written in chronological order of what has to happen on Yom Kippur. So, and everything has to be done to precision, to perfection. You've got to follow it perfectly. Uh, so it's a few verses later we're going to read about what happens to that scapegoat. You know, one of them is offered as a sacrifice and its blood is, 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 is thrown on the, uh, on the altar. It's like a very uh, spiritual destiny, whereas the other one seems to head in an entirely different direction. It's taken by some individual miles and miles outside of the city and it is, it is thrown off a, a cliff. So what's the meaning behind this whole idea of the scapegoat? So you look at the Ibn Ezra. He tells us that this is a secret. I can't tell you what it is. I can't reveal it to you. And the Ramban, the Ramban quotes this Ibn Ezra and he says, ah, I'll reveal you that secret. And he says something very fascinating. He says that there's two identical goats and one's a sacrifice for God and one's thrown off a cliff. And he quotes the Midrash. This is representative of Jacob and Esau and Esav. You have these two brothers, they're twins, they're identical, and yet one of them heads in one direction and the other one heads in the diametrically opposed direction. In fact, the Medrash points out that the Hebrew word for goat is sa'ir, and the Hebrew word that is applied to Esav, to Esau, when he was born, that it was very sa'ir, it was very hairy. And it's, a, and it's an interesting connection that the, uh, that the hairy Esau is represented by the goad that is thrown off the cliff. And then he quotes another midrash from the Pirkei de Belazer, uh, very interesting, that the objective of the scapegoat is to distract and to bribe the Satan. And it gives a whole dialogue between the Satan and God. And of course, in Judaism, Satan is not a counterweight to God. It's in fact an angel of God. 
but its role is to be a prosecutor to invoke the sins of people and to demand retribution and punishment for them. So this angel comes to God and says, Master of the world, you let me prosecute. You let me invoke the sins of all the nations. How come you don't let me do that to the Jewish people? How come I can never get rid of them? So the Almighty responds back, and this is all brought by the Ramban. The Almighty responds back, well, you know what? I will give you one day. I'll give you the day of Yom Kippur. That day, you go inspect the Jewish people if they have any sins, and if they do, then they're fair game. And therefore, continues the Midrash, we give him, i.e. the Satan, we give him a bribe on Yom Kippur so that he should not, he should be too consumed with the bribe and he shouldn't distract the Jewish people from doing what they want. And the idea being is that the, we take him out to kind of uh, the boondocks outside of society and we're offering almost, so to speak, it's not a sacrifice, but we're offering a sacrifice to the Satan, so to speak. That's what's implied over here. And he's so focused on that and therefore he's not able to distract the Jewish people from doing their process. Moreover, in again, this uh, very advanced spiritual concept that the sins – of the entirety of the Jewish people are conferred upon this animal, this scapegoat, and therefore, once that is destroyed, with it go the sins of the Jewish people. And as a result, the Satan comes back and he starts investing in the Jewish people and he says, okay, well, they're all free of sin. And he's totally surprised and perplexed by this. And he tells God, he says, you have this nation that they're exactly like angels. They're always standing, like angels stand, Jewish people stand in Yom Kippur. They're fasting, the angels don't eat, Jewish people don't eat on Yom Kippur. They're totally cleansed from sin like angels. They're totally peaceful. And the is listening to this testimony. And that's what the prosecutor is saying about the accused. And of course, that grants the Jewish people categorical acquittal. And indeed, they're allowed to live for another year and to flourish and indeed their sins are all atoned for. And many of the commentaries invoke this idea with respect to Yom Kippur that the, you know, we tend to think or at least erroneously think that Yom Kippur is a sad day. It's a day we're fasting. It's kind of a day of long prayer, but it's the only fast day that is really commemorating a very happy event. And that is that this day we're like angels. And because we're like angels, we're cleansed. And because we're cleansed, we're eternal. We haven't, they haven't gotten rid of us as much as they tried. We're the one nation that's small and scattered throughout the land, and yet we're still standing. What is the secret to Jewish continuity? How do we continually survive despite everything that we've gone through? The answer is Yom Kippur, because every Yom Kippur, our sins are brought back to zero, and therefore we don't have enough sins to allow the Satan, so to speak, to lobby God successfully to destroy this people because we're never guilty of – we don't. there's no preponderance of sin that would allow the Jewish people to justifiably be destroyed. Okay, so that's the uh, the two goats that we read about over here. One that goes – is designated for the Azazel and the second one that is brought as a sacrifice. And then we read about the incense offering. This was done in the Holy of Holies where the high priest Aaron in this case takes a, a shovel full of coals – and that's from the top of the altar. He carries them into the Holy of Holies and he brings them, uh, he offers them, he pours the incense upon the coals in the Holy of Holies. This was typically done outside of the Holy of Holies on the golden altar, but on this one day it is done 
on the cover of the Ark in the Holy of Holies. Incidentally, the Mishnah tells us that during the Second Temple era that there there wasn't the Ark. The Ark was put away. No one really knows where it is, but they did not have an Ark, and the high priest would do this same offering. He would do it on a stone that was slightly elevated from the ground, and according to many of the scholars, that stone is the very same stone which is now enshrined in the shrine called the Dome of the Rock on top of Temple Mount. So that's uh, the process that he has to do. He shall place the incense upon the fire before Hashem, so that the cloud of the incense shall blanket the ark cover that is atop the tablets of testimony, so that he shall not die. Again, if there is uh, anything that's done improperly, if the order is tinkered with, if any improper activities are done on this day, uh, it's quite uh, implicit over here that the high priest will indeed die. The Talmud tells us, the book of Yoma, that during the second temple era, there was a corruption in the office of the high priest. Previously, it was given to the most righteous of the high priests, of the, of the priests. He was the one who was designated to be the high priest, the, the Kohen Gadol. But in the second temple era, uh, the Sadducees, the Tzedokim, together with their uh, conspirators in the Greeks and eventually the Romans, they would pawn it off. They would sell it to the highest bidder. So you have an instance where someone who's a Kohen, but not a righteous Kohen, they become the high priest. Many of them, they rejected the principles of, of Torah, and consequently they would tinker with the, the procedures of, the, of Yom Kippur, and indeed they would die as the Torah predicts. So the Talmud tells us that they would tie a rope to the leg of the high priest to be able to drag him out, because after all, no one's allowed to walk into the Holy of Holies. So if you have a high priest on the day of Yom Kippur coming in and doing things wrong and dying, well, how are you going to get him out? So they put a chain or a rope to his leg and they would just pull him out in the event, in the unfortunate event, in the tragic event, that he would try to sabotage the process of Yom Kippur as outlined in the Torah and as elucidated in the Talmud and in oral law. And of course, there was a backup they would have a backup Kohen in the event that the uh, the high Kohen, the high priest, would die and would or would corrupt the the procedure. And then we read about the sprinkling of the blood, one up, seven down. This is done in the Holy of Holies, first with the bull and then with with the goat. And then both bloods are sprinkled out of the Holy of Holies on the curtain that separates the two parts of the Mishkan. And then the high priest would provide atonement for himself, for his household, and then for the entire congregation of Israel. So again, the first people that he's trying to provide atonement for are his, himself, and then eventually it spreads to try to cover others. Now, as a general rule, it's kind of odd, this idea of the high priest atoning and even confessing for, for other people. After all, it's, it's their sins. It's not, it's not his sin. What is this idea that the high priest is going to be praying and atoning and, and repenting for the whole Jewish people? After all, the whole Jewish people did their own sin. And if you did your own sin, you're the owner of it. And you need to repent yourself for your own sins. So there's an amazing idea here that I heard from my grandfather. The first Yom Kippur in history was the day that God finally granted forgiveness to the Jewish people as a result of the sin of the golden calf. The Jewish people do the sin of the golden calf, seventh day of Talmud, Moses goes up for 40 days to ensure that God does not destroy the Jewish people. And then on the first day of Elul, he goes up a, a third time, uh, this time 
with the second set of tablets to be inscribed by God, and he comes down 40 days later, which is on Yom Kippur, and that is the same day that God told him, I have forgiven as you have requested. I have forgiven the Jewish people entirely for the sin of the golden calf. So in essence, the power of the day is the fact that this is the day that God provides atonement, of course, but who lobbied for that atonement? That was Moses. So the power of the day is the notion that someone can provide atonement for someone else. And just like Moses was the first to do that on the, on this on the original Yom Kippur, the high priest can also do that on subsequent Yom Kippurs. He provided atonement for other people in the way that Moses did as well. And then we read uh, about the eventually the the male goat that is sent to the Azazel, and he is thrown off off the cliff. And uh, the Talmud tells us that there was a red string that they would have on the uh, in the in the temple, and the whole nation was watching the red string. And when the individual who was tasked with taking the the goat to the Azazel, when he would push the animal off the Azazel, again the animal that's bearing the sins of the whole Jewish people, that red string that was in the temple would miraculously turn from red to white. And to demonstrate the Jewish people were indeed forgiven. The Talmud goes on to say that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the red wool string remained red. The atonement of Yom Kippur was not as powerful as it was previously. And this uh, was the most busy day of the Cohen's uh, year. And if he would do it, if he was successful, they would dance. Everyone was so excited that he managed to secure forgiveness for the whole Jewish people on this very powerful Day. Now, in verse 23, we read something interesting that the high priest would remove the linen vestments and he would leave them there. A really interesting term. Rashi tells us, quote from the Talmud, the book of Yoma, page 12, that he would leave them there. That implies that he would never use those garments again. He used those four white garments on Yom Kippur once and the following year he would use a different one. They can't be reused. What's the idea? So I heard an amazing idea as to why the linen garments used by the Kohen Gadol in year one cannot be reused on year two. And he says that repentance, you know, to us, it's like a very fuzzy concept. But you look at the sources, it's clear. Someone does a sin, it's akin to a blemish. Someone does repentance, it is removal of the blemish without any scar. And the Rambam has a very famous line where he tells us the laws of repentance. It's almost as if God himself testifies that the person who sinned will never sin again. Their repentance was complete and was genuine. So if you think about that, what happens after Yom Kippur? You have everyone's cleansed from sin and everyone's sure that there's no sin anymore because the repentance was real. And therefore, the whole concept of needing another Yom Kippur to atone for sins, it's so foreign, it's so beyond the pale of we're, we're cleansed and we'll be cleansed forever. At least that's the understanding right after the atonement has been completed and therefore they take the garments and they say, okay, we don't need these anymore. So that's the conclusion of the Yom Kippur services. And then we read about the eternal commandment of Yom Kippur, the commandment that applies to us today. This shall remain for you an eternal decree in the seventh month, the month of Tishrei. On the tenth of the month, you shall afflict yourself. You shall not do any work, neither the native nor the proselyte who dwells amongst you. For on this day, 
He should provide atonement for you to purify you from all your sins before Hashem shall you be purified. This is the day that we fast, that we afflict ourselves, that we eschew the physical realm entirely, because in this day we're like angels. And it's important to stress that just like in Olam Abba, just like in the afterlife, the Talmud tells us it's a time, it's a place where there's no food. Why is there no food? And in fact, the Talmud goes on to say that there's no food, there's no eating, there's no standing, there's no, there's no procreation, there's no competition. All the things that personify our world don't apply in that world because that's a spiritual world. Here's a physical world. Physical world, you need physical things, you need physical food, etc. Olam Abba, the spiritual world, you don't need food. Not that you don't have food, you don't need it. Yom Kippur, we ascend to a holy level, we become like angels, and just like in Olam Abba, you don't need food. On Yom Kippur, you don't need food. It's not a time of sadness, it's actually a reflection of happiness and joy and ecstasy fitting for the level that we achieve on Yom Kippur. And I think it's also important to, re- to read uh, this verse. For on this day, God's going to provide atonement for all our sins. He's going to purify us and we'll be close to God. On this day, we're close to God. It's the root of the holiday almost. Normally, we have barriers separating us and our Creator. And on Yom Kippur, those barriers are temporarily removed. It's one of those days in the Jewish calendar that a lot can be achieved in one day. Normally, you face stiff resistance in your pursuit of God, in your pursuit of spirituality, in your pursuit of getting close to your soul. That's normally. On this day, those barriers are temporarily lifted, and whatever you grab on that day, you can keep with you subsequently. In fact, the Talmud, the book of Nadarim, tells us that the word hasatan, the satan, which is emblematic of the thing that barrier, that those barriers, the things that separate us from God, the gematria, the numerical value, every Hebrew letter has a corresponding number, the numerical value of the word hasatan is 364. And that's to tell you that there's one day a year that that entity, that that barrier, that that resistance, that that headwinds that we have in our spiritual pursuits does not exist. That's Yom Kippur. We're close to God. We become pure and he atones for us. It's also interesting, you know, that's also the day of the sealing of judgment. And my uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Asherieli, he once pointed out that if you think about it, there's no greater gift than to have our judgment sealed on the very day where God is most inclined to forgive, to mercy, to acquittal. What an amazing thing that the Almighty set up that the judgment should be sealed on Yom Kippur, the day designated all the way since the time of the golden calf, designated as a day for forgiveness and atonement and expiation of even the most severe of sins. I want to point out another idea here. If you look at this verse, verse 30, on this day, you'll be atoned and you'll be purified. So there's certain kinds of, of various different kinds of cleansing that we see here in this verse. There's, there's atonement, uh, kapara in Hebrew, and there's purity, which is tahara. Different words describe different degrees of, of purification. So my grandfather of blessed memory, he said that the word kapara is similar to the word kaporet. Kaporet was one of the items needed in the, in, in the temple, the tabernacle, and that was the cover of the ark. It's called the kaporet. And my grandfather explained that that's the idea. The root of the idea of kapara, of atonement, is to conceal. It's to cover, almost like you have radiation. What do you do with nuclear waste? Yeah, it's a problem because you can't really get rid of it, but you could try to contain it. You could cover it. 
you could conceal it. You put it in a, in a lead box and you, you bury it. It's still present, but it's not manifested. Similarly, the idea of atonement is to take the sin and to kind of cordon it off, to quarantine it, to contain it. It's not gone. Whereas the higher level that we also achieve on Yom Kippur, of course, there's atonement, but hopefully there's purity as well where the sin has been totally cleansed, it's been totally removed, it's not just contained, it's not just limited, it's not just suppressed, it has been cleansed, it has been removed. So that's the uh, day that we uh, revisit every year. And just uh, quickly, uh, Rabbi Israel Salanter said that it's such a powerful day that if it only happened once every 70 years, then people would wish each other, may you live to see Yom Kippur, may you live to experience this tremendous spiritual achievement where the Jewish people are close to God, where a day where God is saying he's welcoming our prayers, he's invested in trying to find a way to provide acquittal and atonement and purification for the Jewish people. Chapter 17 begins, Hashem spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, uh, not to do sacrifice, not to slaughter outside the temple, not to do uh, various other uh, procedures. So we know the sacrifice is only uh, the, the slaughter is only one part of the sacrifice. There's other pr- uh, parts of it. None of them can be done outside of the tabernacle. There are, of course, certain ex- exceptions. Uh, for example, uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and, and Gerun as well. There are some times where that is temporarily suspended, and of course, there's also times before the temple was fully established on a permanent basis. It was possible to do what's called a bama, which is a private altar. But besides for that, it has to be done inside the confines of the camp, inside the confines of the tent of meeting, inside the tabernacle. And if someone does not do that, if someone brings a sacrifice outside of the tabernacle, it's considered bloodshed. This is verse 4. For that man, he has shed blood, and that man should be cut off from amidst his people. Rashi says something very scary. If someone does uh, sacrifices outside of the temple grounds, the tabernacle grounds, he is as guilty as a murderer. Very harsh statement that Rashi here quotes from our sages. Now, the commentaries explain what's the rationale behind this. And some of them invoke the prohibition on Adam against consumption of meat. Adam was told, you eat all the grass. You gotta be vegetarian. You be vegan. But you cannot have any meat. You can't certainly not kill any animals to consume their meat. After the flood, Noah and his descendants, they were permitted to kill animals for their enjoyment and of course for sacrifices. But if someone does an improper sacrifice, well that was never permitted. And that reverts back to the prohibited stage as if it wasn't permitted and therefore it's, it's bloodshed. Of course it's not as bad as murder, but it's still uh, pretty bad. And the section, the paragraph concludes, they should no longer slaughter their offerings to the demons after whom they stray. This should be an eternal decree to them for the generations. They have to do their, their, their sacrifices properly, not the way they used to do in the past when they were idolaters and they would slaughter their offerings to demons. That's what's done in Egypt and done various other places. And if they do that, they're deviating, they're straying away from God. And uh, this is an interesting idea here. Rashi tells us that there's, uh, there, you know, you, you read this verse, you kind of kind of miss it. But uh, if you read it slowly, it jumps out of you that they used to sacrifice uh, offerings to demons, a very unusual thing. And that's, of course, it's strained from God uh, because only God can do good or bad. There's no other powers. But uh, the idea of demons don't exactly appear in every uh, page of Jewish literature. So there's a very interesting essay here 
that the Ramban gives on on demons. The first time I saw it was this year, just mind blowing. He talks uh, all about demons and and how they how they're constructed and uh, they're created out of only fire and wind. They they could fly, but they could still die. And he quotes the Talmud that in three ways they're similar to angels, in three ways they're similar to humans. They eat, they drink, they procreate, they die like humans. Uh, how they die, uh, how they know the future like angels, but of course uh, they're not something we should worship. Uh, they have no real powers. That's a really interesting essay here. The Ramban encouraged. If you're interested in reading about the demons, uh, 17.7, the Ramban here, uh, I think it raises kind of more questions than answers because the whole subject is somewhat uh, opaque and murky. Uh, there is a very interesting story in the Talmud about Rabbi Shum Baruchai and a demon that was quite helpful to him. Uh, he was trying to get the decree against uh, Judaism annulled in Rome and he had a, a very helpful demon that embedded himself or itself into the daughter of the Caesar, and she was going crazy. Demon Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon walks into Rome, and I was like, oh, where's Rabbi Shimon? Where's Rabbi Shimon? And he goes, and he meets the family, and he tells the demon, come out of this uh, this girl, and they're so thankful, we want to give you a reward. He says, all I want is this document. He takes the document and rips it up. Really interesting uh, story, how a demon helped uh, the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. But again, uh, just an interesting Note here, if you want to read about that, uh, the Ramban here on 17.7. And then we read about the prohibition against consumption of blood. Any man from the house of Israel shall not consume any blood. I shall consecrate my attention upon the soul. If someone does that, God says he's going to focus on this person. I'll cut him off from the midst of the people. For the soul of the flesh is in the blood. And I have assigned it for you upon the altar to provide atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that atones for the soul. So this is an interesting verse here, verse 11 this idea that you can't have blood because the blood is the soul and the blood is meant to be placed upon the altar. In fact, kosher meats are salted to remove the blood. But what is this idea that the blood is the soul of the animal and it's meant to be placed upon the altar and therefore you cannot have it? So the Ramban offers various explanations. Number one, he says that the simple understanding uh, seems to be that the blood was given for a specific purpose to be placed upon the altar and therefore it was designated for sacrificial use. It cannot be used for any other use. A second explanation he gives, and just like we spoke about earlier, Adam was allowed to have animals and the animals were given to men and specifically to men because men could recognize God, but the animal was given, the body of the animal was for our physical use and the animal's soul, i.e. the blood, was for our spiritual use. And therefore the body of the animal, the meat, the steak, we could eat and enjoy, but the soul of the animal, i.e. the blood, it's improper for us to eat that, because if we eat that, then it's going to bring about judgment upon us, because a soul eating a soul, of course, the soul of the human soul of the animal are different, but that is different for spiritual uses and not for physical uses. And finally, the Rabban gives a third explanation as to why we do not eat the blood, and that is because the blood, like the verse says, has the soul, so to speak, of the of the animal. And if you eat that, you're going to mingle the human soul with the animalistic soul. And you're going to dull, you're going to weaken the powers of your spiritual soul with the, so to speak, soul of the animal. And he goes on to explain uh, that there's a difference between the blood and the meat. The meat gets digested. The blood does not get digested and then right away comes into the animal that consumes it. And if a human consumes the blood, he becomes less spiritually sensitive because now there's the effect, so to speak, of the soul of the animal 
quivering within him. And the Ramban, once again, invokes his teaching at the beginning of Leviticus that the objective of a sacrifice is to replace the soul of man with the soul of the animal, i.e. the soul of someone sins against God. Well, that's a, should be an executable offense. That's mutiny against God. And therefore, they should really be killed. But in his magnanimity, God says, okay, I'm going to let you transfer your soul to the animal's soul. We'll kill the, the animal instead and sprinkle its blood upon the altar. Really, it's supposed to be your blood, but it's its blood instead. And therefore, you will be provided with atonement. And therefore, it's improper for us to eat that. That should be used for our spiritual needs. And if we do that, we're going to be imbibing in the soul of the animal. And that is not good because it's going to weaken our human, our powerful, our angelic soul. And the next mitzvah that we read in verse 13 also deals with the blood, and that is the covering of the blood. Uh, this is not uh, the consumption of the blood, it's the covering of the blood. Any man of the children of Israel and the proselyte who dwells amongst them, who you kill a beast or a bird, so this is an undomesticated animal that's kosher, like a deer and a bird. This does not apply with uh, domesticated livestock uh, or sheep. You should pour out its blood and cover it with earth. This is the idea of Kisa Adam, the idea of covering the blood of the animal that you're killing. And again, we read for the life of any creature, its blood represents its life. And therefore, I tell the Jewish people, don't consume the blood. The life of a creature is its blood, and whoever consumes it will be cut off. So the verse seems to connect the idea of consumption of blood, the prohibition of consumption of blood with the idea of covering the blood. And the simple understanding is, that, you know, you want to remind yourself not to eat from the blood. And therefore, there's a mitzvah to cover the blood of the animals that you, that you kill and you want to consume. Now, it's interesting that this only applies to kosher non-domesticated animals and birds, but not animals that can potentially be offered as sacrifices so a cow, a bull, a sheep, a goat, a ram, those animals, there is no mitzvah to cover their blood. And all the commentators offer many, many different interpretations as to why that way, that may be. So, for example, Archaim says that, you know, if you have a bird, it's really hard to catch. It's flying around. If you have an, an undomesticated animal like a deer, it's hard to catch. And therefore, when you catch it, you value it. I worked so hard to get that. I want to make sure I consume every little possible bit of this animal. I worked so hard to get it. And therefore, there's there's more of a concern with an animal that's hard to catch that you may come to eat the blood, and therefore, it is supposed to be covered. Whereas uh, the animals that you have in your farm, the animals that you have in your barn, the livestock and the sheep, that's easy to catch, and we're not as concerned well, the Torah is not as concerned that you may come to eat it. That's what he suggests. Balhaturim says a very deep idea. He says that you have animals that are offered as sacrifices. When an animal is offered as a sacrifice, that provides, that allows us to eat even animals that are not sacrifices. So we have a steak today. That comes from a cow, Right? Cows were offered as sacrifices or bulls were offered as sacrifices and therefore the sacrifice that happened thousands of years ago, that allows me to eat this meat today. But undomesticated animals are not brought as sacrifices. And even birds, even though some of them are brought as sacrifices, but their blood is not sprinkled upon the altar and therefore their sacrifice does not provide as much atonement and therefore there is a risk if we eat 
this animal without covering the blood, that may bring about judgment upon us, and therefore we cover about a very deep idea here. Now, just some backstory here. The Midrash, in the beginning of Genesis, it tells us that in the first homicide, the first fratricide of history where Cain killed Abel, he did not know to, what to do with the corpse. He didn't know what to do with it. And the Almighty brought about two birds that began a fight in front of him. And one of the birds killed the other bird. And then the bird who killed the other one dug a hole and buried the bird that he had killed. And right away, Cain was watching this and he knew to dig a hole and to bury his deceased brother. And therefore, concludes the Midrash, this is in Midrash Tanchuma in Bereshis, in Genesis number 10, chapter 10. Therefore, birds merited, because of this story, birds merited to have their blood covered. And this is, it seems to imply that there's a certain degree of burial that is present here in this mitzvah. The idea of covering their blood is a way of, so to speak, burying them and providing them a, a dignified destiny. Chapter 18 is going to talk about uh, forbidden relationships and some other things that are forbidden as well. And it begins with a very interesting introduction. Hashem is what Moses is saying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am Hashem your God. Do not perform the practice of the land of Egypt in which you have dwelled and do not perform the practice in the land of Canaan to which I bring you. So you're, you're surrounded in bad company. You had bad influences in Egypt. You're going to have bad influences in the land of Canaan. Don't follow the ways of your neighbors and do not follow their traditions. Rashi tells us a very powerful idea that when the Jewish people, when they have neighbors, they end up finding the worst neighbors. The worst were the Egyptians and the Canaanites and specifically the Canaanites that remained in the land of Israel after the conquest of the land. Very unusual thing here that the Jewish people are always surrounded by the most spiritually lacking and decadent of people, first the Egyptians and then the Canaanites. And therefore, they have to be worried. Don't behave like them. Don't learn from them. Don't be influenced negatively by them. So what's the idea? So there's various explanations presented or suggested as to why the Jewish people always live in the worst neighborhoods. Uh, one is the idea that when Jews have unsavory neighbors, it actually keeps the Jewish people in line. You know, if you have – you're surrounded – by low lives, you're not necessarily tempted to go be like them. And you could retain your Jewish identity and character. Whereas if your neighbors are very sweet and very pleasant and very moral, but very Gentile or, or still idolaters, there's a risk of you saying, uh, you know what? These neighbors are so cool. Let me be more like them. That's one idea. Uh, alternatively, we could say that perhaps the Jewish people were brought to those neighborhoods to be a positive influence on them. That almost as if God has taken the Jewish people, this is one of the theories with the idea of a wandering Jew, the Jewish people are always dispersed throughout the land. Why? To spread our influence as far and wide as possible. We're supposed to be the light into the nations, and therefore we have to be next to the nations to influence them. Well, which nations we be next to? The ones that need the most help. Alternatively, we could maybe suggest that the Jewish people actually caused their Gentile neighbors to harden, to calcify their nature. Almost as if the, the, the Gentile neighbors of the Jewish people, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, they felt compelled to be a counterweight to the Jewish people 
and therefore to deepen, to, to intensify their character. And then it's interesting here. It says, do not, not only do not perform the practice of the land of, of Canaan and the land of, of Egypt, but don't follow their traditions. That seems to not just include things that are prohibited, but even things that maybe are morally ambiguous. Like Rashi says, don't go to their stadiums. Don't go to their race courses. Don't participate in their culture. Don't participate in their society because you'll become influenced by them, which is why uh, in certain sects of the Jewish people, there's very much an emphasis on trying to retain a Jewish identity, Jewish culture, and Jewish language, things like that, because of this idea to not follow the ways of the Gentiles, even in things that are not prohibited. And then it says, carry out my laws, safeguard my decrees, and follow them. Again, this is all part of this introduction. I am Hashem your God. You shall observe my decrees and my laws, which man shall carry out, and by which he shall live. I am Hashem. So all different kinds of laws, laws you understand, laws you don't understand, walk in their ways. Rashi tells us, what does it mean to walk in the ways of mitzvos? It means to not absolve yourself from mitzvos. Don't say, oh, you know what? I studied Torah. I can move on to other wisdoms. Torah is infinite. You cannot finish it. You have to always walk in it. It's like an endless path. And therefore, you can never say, you know what? I have been granted a degree in Torah. I know it all. I can move on to other pursuits. The sages tell us that the Torah is compared to water. And the Chavetz Chaim of Blessed Memory used to explain that this is like a sea. You know, if you, if you step into the Pacific Ocean, and it's up to your ankles. You're like, hey, I could walk to Japan. But of course, the deeper you walk in, the deeper you realize that it is. Similarly with Torah, the people that are the least educated in matters of Torah, they're convinced that they know it all. But the more someone immerses themselves in the seas of the Torah, the more they realize how much there is. The Torah is God's knowledge. God is infinite. And therefore, his knowledge, his Torah is likewise infinite. And therefore, we can never move on to other pursuits by saying that we're done with Torah. And there's an interesting verse, verse 5, very famous verse, you shall observe my decrees and my laws by which man shall carry out and by which he shall live. There's an idea here that when someone does mitzvot, they live. And Rashi tells us, what does that mean that they live? They live in the afterlife. Don't say it means they live here because after all, every human that lives here, every human in their constitution of body and soul eventually dies. And therefore, the Torah says that they will live, it must be they will live eternally. Life has to be permanent, and only via mitzvot does someone merit eternal life. There is an amazing Ramban, I don't want to go through it at length, but the Ramban lays out the four times in the Torah that it says you do mitzvot, you get life, and he explains that these four times correspond to the four different motivations that someone has with mitzvot. And therefore, each motivation that someone has with a mitzvah is going to spawn life, but different kinds of life. Depending upon the motivation someone has with doing a mitzvah, that's going to determine the kind of life that the mitzvah will spawn. And as an aside, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin derives from this verse that you do mitzvahs and you shall live, that the mitzvah is given to us to live and not to die. And therefore, if someone, let's say, has a potential life that needs to be saved, that can override many mitzvahs. So you can drive to the hospital on Shabbos to save a life that mitzvah is given to us to live and not to die with the exception of three cardinal sins, idolatry, adultery, and of course murder. Those are the things that you have to give up your life and not transgress. So the rest of the parasha is going to detail mostly uh, the 
prohibited relationships that someone uh, may not uh, may not have. So, nakedness of your father, you shall not approach. Nakedness of your mother, don't be with your father's wife. Don't be with your sister. Don't be with your daughters. Don't be with your granddaughters. All the various different forbidden relationships that are outlined by the Torah. But it begins in verse 6, a man shall not approach his close relatives to uncover their nakedness. I am Hashem. So this is an additional mitzvah. There's one mitzvah, one prohibition against copulation, against intercourse with one of these forbidden relationships. But then it begins to not even approach them. So this is a prohibition against anything that could potentially lead towards any sort of promiscuity is also prohibited. So any sort of flirtation, things like that, that could get close to forbidden relationships are also prohibited. So just a few things that are interesting here. In verse 18, for example, we read about a man should not be with two, not be with two sisters. You should not take a woman in addition to her sister to make them rivals, to uncover the nakedness of one upon the other in her lifetime. So this is one of the unique relationships that when the relationship is caused by a third party and that third party dies, then the relationship is now permitted. So for example, a man has a, a wife and the wife, of course, has a mother. That mother-in-law is prohibited to him. But if the wife dies, the mother-in-law is still prohibited to them, even though the link connecting those two people has been has been lost, that prohibition stands. Similarly, someone has a daughter-in-law and tragically their son dies, the daughter-in-law is still off limits for the father-in-law. Whereas a sister, someone marries one sister, he's not allowed to mar- marry the second sister, but if the first sister dies, the second sister is permitted. So for example, uh, Ariel Sharon, who was a great general prime minister in in Israel, his sis, his wife died in a car accident in 1962, and he went on to marry her sister after the death of his first wife, and it's apparently quite common. Uh, verse 19, you should not pro- approach a woman in her time of unclean separation. A woman is menstruating, she is called a nida, and no one is allowed to lie with her, no one is allowed to be with her. Uh, the Talmud tells us in the book of Nida, page 31b, that why does the Torah prohibit a man from being with his wife when she is menstruating? Because if a person is always allowed to be with his wife, they never have time that they're off, so to speak, he will get sick of her. He'll get tired of her. The pizzazz, the excitement of the relationship will dissipate. And therefore, says the Torah, take a break. And when the break is over, your love and your lust even, your desire for your spouse will be restored to the way it was on the day of your wedding. And that's the way to keep a relationship uh, between husband and wife, the physical relationship, the intimate relationship, to keep it fresh and to not, God forbid, uh, allow people to look elsewhere, but also to have people, people should have rewarding and fulfilling and gratifying relationships, not just uh, in the spiritual sense, but with their wife in the most intimate uh, sense as well. And then there's another uh, mitzvah here. This is not a, a sexual nature. And that is the idea of not giving your children to Molech. Molech was a certain kind of, of idol. And the way this idol was was served is that the child uh, was passed uh, through the fire. And there's a disagreement here amongst the commentaries whether or not the child was actually killed, if this was child sacrifice or not. The Rashi and the Rambam, they say no, it was just you pass him through the fire and that was the means of worship. The Ramban, another very long essay here, and he proves conclusively no, that this was actually a way of killing the child. This was infanticide. You kill the child, you pass him back and forth over the fire until they die. And the Midrash adds a brutal, uh, macabre, heinous component to this, that they would actually have a band playing music 
so that the father would not hear the shrieks of his son or his daughter being killed in this heinous, horrific, brutal way. It's kind of stunning to us, the devotion that people would have to idolatry, what they would even do to the idol to kill their own child, just so unimaginable to us. And of course, this is a grave desecration of God's name, as the verse continues to say, don't present any of your children to pass through Molech, do not profane the name of God, uh, the name of your God, I am Hashem. There can be nothing as heinous as taking the child, the child who's holy, and giving him to the idol and killing him in this terrible, brutal way. And, of course, there is the mitzvah against, uh, prohibition against sodomy. A man cannot be with a man as he is with a woman. It's an abomination. A man cannot be with an animal. A woman cannot be with an animal. Bestiality is also prohibited. And the parsha concludes, do not become contaminated through any of these because the people who lived the land of Israel, they did that and the land became contaminated and the land kicked them out, the land vomited them out, the land disgorged its inhabitants, and God promises if the Jewish people do that, they too will be kicked out of the land. Don't behave like that, because this land is not like any other land. Land has a certain degree of spiritual intolerance to sin, and the land itself will vomit them out. And the Ramban has another long essay, there's many long essays by the Ramban here, but he talks about the idea of direct divine oversight to this land, Every other land has a certain filter through which God's influence is brought through, whereas the land of Israel does not have any filter. The eyes of God are watching Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The land itself harbors an intolerance for impurity, and therefore the people who live in the land have to be worthy of it. If they're not worthy of it, the land itself will kick them out. And I find it striking that no land has traded hands as frequently as the Holy Land, as the land of Israel. No land has been conquered and then lost as frequently. And this is the idea. This is the reason why you find at the end of the Parsha in chapter 18, because the land itself does not sit idly with the people who live on it behaving improperly, behaving in a spiritually decrepit and immoral fashion. And if we want to maintain our continuity over the land, you should safeguard my, my charge, not do any of the abominations, the traditions that were done before you, do not contaminate yourself through them, and the Parsha ends, I am Hashem, your God. Parsha's Kedoshim only has two chapters, chapter 19 and 20 of Leviticus, 64 verses, but it contains 51 different mitzvos, including some of the most famous ones in the Torah. And in fact, it has the highest mitzvah density of any parsha in the Torah, the most mitzvos per verse. And the parsha begins, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the entire assembly of the children of Israel and tell to them you should be holy, for holy am I, Hashem, your God. The parsha begins with an instruction. Moshe tells the whole Jewish people, Be holy because Hashem is holy. Now Rashi right away notices that there's a few extra words that don't usually appear in this kind of verse. You know, the most common verse in the Torah, Hashem said to Moshe, go tell the Jewish people, and Moshe goes and tells it to the Jewish people. But here it doesn't say, go tell the Jewish people. It says, speak to the entire assembly. It adds a few words. Why does it embellish the fact that Moshe speaks the entirety of the Jewish people, the whole congregation? Rashi tells us that this Torah section was said in front of the entirety of the Jewish people. It was a convention. Everyone got together, and everyone was there men, women, and children, because this is so important. This 
parsha, this section of the Torah, so important because the majority, the bulk of the Torah is contingent upon this portion and therefore was set in front of everyone. Now, it's also clear why this particular parsha contains the majority of the Torah. So maybe we could perhaps suggest, if you look at verse 18, it's one of the most famous verses in the whole Torah, and that is to love your fellow as yourself. And the Talmud tells us that that particular verse is encapsulatory of the entirety of the Torah. So maybe one could suggest that the reason why we're told that this is so central, it has to be set in front of the entirety of the Jewish people, because the whole Torah hinges upon it, that is related to that verse, Vahafter Achramochu, you should love your fellow as yourself, which the Talmud tells us is a verse that includes all of Torah, perhaps. Now, the Zohar tells us something very interesting. The Zohar tells us that when the students of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, when they arrived at this particular verse, when they read it, they rejoiced. And it's not so clear as to why this verse in particular, the first verse in our Parsha, you should be holy for I am holy. Why is that a verse that evokes joy? So maybe we could suggest that, well, the essence of the verse is a very powerful idea. God is telling Jewish people, you should be like me. That's the argument here. That's the offer on the table. God saying, I'm holy, but you could be like me, which is an amazing idea. Alternatively, we can maybe suggest that holiness, what does holiness mean? In other religions, holiness is synonymous with celibacy, with asceticism, perhaps with adopting a monastic lifestyle, going away from civilizations, living on a mountaintop, removing yourself from this world. And in Judaism, what do we see? The verse tells us, be holy, but how does it begin? Everyone get together. Speak to the entirety of the congregation of the assembly of the, of the Jewish people and tell them to be holy. Even amidst civilization, together all as one, you don't need to eschew this world. You don't need to reject society. You don't need to live a monastic life for you to be holy. Now, what exactly does holiness even mean? It seems like it's kind of a fuzzy, abstract idea that we seem to not necessarily have very concrete, clear guidelines as to what constitutes holy, so holiness. So Rashi tells us that holiness is synonymous with modesty. Whenever someone is separated from forbidden sexual relations, that's where you find holiness. Now there's a Ramban who kind of elaborates on this point a very famous Ramban, maybe the most famous comment of Ramban on the entire Torah, and he kind of expands this idea of holiness while acknowledging that it's somewhat fuzzy, but he explains that that's, in fact, by design. And he introduces an interesting concept. He says, you know, you look at the Torah, Leviticus, we've read all kinds of prohibitions, all kinds of people we can't be with intimately, all kinds of foods that are banned, but of course, there are people that we can be with our wives. If someone has many wives, he even says you could have women that are that are permitted to you. And if the meat's kosher, if the wine's kosher, well, it's it's permitted. So what's going to be? You have someone who wants to obey the Torah, and they follow the letter of the law with precision, with fastidiousness. Everything they eat, everything that they spend their time with, everything is totally sanctioned by the rules of the Torah. But what do they do? their whole life, they're immersed in pursuit of carnal pleasure, in pursuit of physical pleasure. 
They become, in his words, a glutton, a heathen, and all with the permission of the Torah. Everything is kosher. The women that he's with are permitted to him. The food, the meat, the wine that he's eating, it's all 100% kosher. What do you have? You have someone who is a total glutton, but it's all with the permission of Torah. And therefore, says the Ramban, what does it mean to be holy? It means to not lose sight of the overarching message of the Torah with all the details. It's like they they say about the person who sees all the trees but misses the forest. There's all these laws that we've read, but what's the bottom line message? The bottom line message is to be holy, to be someone who is oriented around pursuit of spiritual goals, the spiritual agenda, identifying with the soul, being more similar to God. Yes, there's laws, and yes, those laws are immutable. And those things are not ones that we could disregard. We can't just say, you know what, we'll follow the overarching message and disregard the laws. But we can't go the opposite direction either. We can't say, you know, we'll just follow the letter of the law and miss out in the overarching Message And therefore, says the Ramban, after the Torah delineates all the specific prohibitions of the Torah, it gives us a general rule that even when things are permitted, we should develop restraint to not be someone who is totally immersed in pursuit of physical and carnal pleasures. We should be holy. We should focus on holiness in pursuit of the spiritual agenda. And he goes on to detail. What does that mean? With respect to intercourse, he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that Torah scholars shouldn't be with their wives like roosters. And in fact, in Talmudic parlance, the rooster is considered the animal that is most submerged in pursuit of carnal pleasure. And therefore, even though it's permitted, it's your wife after all, permitted, still the Talmud tells us that we should not be people that are always together with our wives, even when it's permitted. Similarly, with wine, it's kosher wine, 100% kosher, fantastic. But if that's your pursuit, then you're missing the boat. You're missing the overarching message of the Torah. And in fact, he talks about the Nazir. The Nazir is someone who accepts upon themselves a vow to not drink wine for 30 days to focus instead on spirituality. And he talks about Lot and Noah, both episodes in Genesis that talk about People, great people, who were drinking wine and bad things happened to them as a result. Even with respect to impurity, we're told even though you're not a Cohen, you don't necessarily have the strict, rigid restrictions against becoming impure, still live a more spiritually uplifted life. Your mouth, says the Ramban, you could use it for bad speech, you could use it for gluttony, or you could develop restraint, you could develop self-control, you become more holy. And that's the general outlook here. When you first were told the details, and then were given the general principle. And this pattern follows itself. He quotes in the book of Deuteronomy, we read about many laws related to interpersonal matters, to monetary matters. And then it says, again, a very fuzzy, opaque verse you should do what's straight, what's proper, and what is good. And again, that seems to be not very easily defined. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to do what's right, what's proper? And the answer is, like like we've said pre- previously, it means to be a mensch. It means not to just say, you know what, I'm going to find all the loopholes that I can that are permitted by Torah. It means to act 
above and beyond the letter of the law to add in a to act in a proper moral fashion, but in, in ways that are not detailed necessarily in the Torah. There is a line that people say that the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, is broken down into four general categories, but there's the fifth category that's not written, and that is to be a mensch, to have derech heretz. These are terms in Hebrew, meaning to be someone who does what's right, even if it's not written specifically and explicitly. Similarly, a third example of this, we have the laws of Shabbat, the 39 categories of work, all the things that are prohibited, and then we're told, tishbot, you should rest, which is a general idea, the general concept that shouldn't be lost in the details. And finally, concludes the Ramban, why should we be holy? Why should we be distinct? Because as a result of that, we could become similar to God. We could cleave to God and become similar to him. We could focus on developing our spirituality and connecting to our soul and thereby connecting to the Almighty. And I think for us, the challenge is to try to find that fine line between total abstinence, total celibacy, and restraint and self-control. We don't believe that all physicality is evil, and therefore we're not monastic, we are not celibate, but on the flip side, we have to learn to develop and hone our sense of restraint and our self-control. And maybe we could argue, you know, given that we've seen this Ramban, that Maybe this is why Rashi tells us that this was said in front of everyone because this verse really encapsulates the bottom line goal of Torah, and that is to be holy and to be similar to God. Now, another important point that is deduced from this Ramban, and he tells us that if we did not have this verse to be holy, we would think that you could be a heathen to be a glutton with the permission of Torah. But now that we do have this verse, now that the Torah told us, be holy because God's holy, and that means to follow all the unwritten rules, then those unwritten rules have in fact been written in this verse. Okay, so that's the introduction to our Parsha. And then it begins a rapid fire of mitzvos uh, from the beginning of the Parsha, essentially all the way to the end, but mo- most pronounced in chapter 19. Now, there's another amazing Ramban here. The Ramban quotes a Midrash that tells us that in these first 20 or so verses of this chapter, you can find hints for all 10 commandments. Really interesting. So it begins, every man you should fear your mother and your father and observe my Shabbos. So why does it say mother and then father? Rashi points out that if you look at the 10 commandments, it tells us that you should honor your father and your mother. So the father precedes the mother. Whereas here, when it says to fear your parents, it says fear your mother, and then it says your father. So who comes first, the father or the mother? So it says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, that with respect to honor, when someone is more inclined to honor their mother, it says honor your father and then your mother. Whereas with respect to fear, where a person is more inclined to fear their father He's more the, the dominant figure, the figure that commands fear and respect. It says it the opposite, fear your mother and your father. What's the connection between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse? What's the connection between fearing your parents and observing Shabbos? So Rashi tells us that even though there's a mitzvah to fear your parents, 
that cannot override, that cannot supersede your fear of God. Meaning, if God, if your parents tell you to desecrate the Shabbos, then you may not do that. Why? Because you and your parents are both subject to the will of God, and therefore your father's instruction cannot override the instruction given to you by the Almighty. The next verse continues, Do not turn to the idols and molten God you shall make for yourselves. I am Hashem, your God. What does it mean not to turn to the idols? So the Ibn Ezra tells us it means not even to look at them. There is a prohibition here in the Torah to gaze or to examine or to scrutinize the foreign gods. So maybe if you're passing a church, you don't need to admire its architecture. But there's a very deep Rashi here. Rashi points out that if you look at the Hebrew of this verse, it says, Al tifnu el ha'elilim. So the first word to describe the foreign gods is elilim. And in the continuation of the verse, it says, and molten gods you shall make for yourself. It says, ve'elohe masicha lotaselacha, lotasulachem. So it switches the name of the foreign gods. Initially, it's called Elilim, and then it's called Elohei Masicha. So why does the verse switch the name, the Hebrew name, accorded to the foreign god? So Rashi tells us a fascinating insight. Number one, when it starts off, it's Elilim, meaning in Hebrew, that means El means nothing, and El means God. So it's not a God. It's a nothing. It's a non-entity. Initially, when someone begins their foray, so to speak, into idolatry, the truth is the God has no value. But what happens once they do immerse themselves in the ways of idolatry? In effect, they're granting it legitimacy. So it begins with Elil, which means it's nothing, but after you accord it some value, it begins to absorb some value and then it's upgraded to a Elohut, so to speak. It does, it is given some value. So what Rashi is telling us, a very deep insight, that something that really is nothing, that really has no legitimacy, has no value, when legitimacy is accorded to it, when it is granted some legitimacy in the eyes of people, it kind of gets upgraded in their mind and something which is really nothing becomes something. So we have to be very careful not to, on our own, upgrade the foreign gods that we, so to speak, have in our life. The parasha continues with talking about various prohibitions with respect to offering sacrifices. So we read in verse 5, two separate laws. Number one, not to slaughter with the intention of eating a peace offering outside the permitted time frame. There is uh, two days that you're allowed to eat it, but if you have intention to eat it on the third day, then you cannot even eat it the first two days. That's considered a pigle. It's rejected. In addition, there is another instruction that we, when we slaughter that particular sacrifice, it has to be slaughtered with active intention. If someone slaughters it and they, they're just practicing they're not actively thinking about fulfilling the mitzvah and offering the sacrifice, then that becomes invalid. And then verse 9 and 10, we read about various gifts that are given to the poor. So first we read about the payah. If someone has a farm, they have to leave the corner of the field unharvested and give it to the poor. So the poor are allowed to come harvest that corner of the field. 
worried about leket. Leket is when someone is collecting their harvest and one or two of the stalks fall, then you're not allowed to retrieve it to leave it for the poor to collect. Whereas if three stalks fall, that's significant enough that you could collect it yourself. In addition, we read about the underdeveloped grapes that don't form into clusters. Those must be left for the poor to harvest. And finally, the fallen fruit of the vineyard is likewise given to the poor. And then the Parsha continues with all kinds of interpersonal laws, how we have to treat other people. So it begins verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deny falsely, you should not lie to one another. We have to be honest with our dealings with other people. Now, when it says over here not to steal, Rashi points out that in the Ten Commandments, when it says don't steal, it refers to kidnapping, not to steal souls. Whereas over here, when it refers to not to steal, it refers to not stealing in a covert way, in a hidden way, to not steal surreptitiously money or possessions from other people. And then it says not to swear falsely, not to cheat your friend. So if you have an employee you cannot withhold his wages. It continues not to steal in an overt way. So there's two separate ways of stealing money, either in a hidden way or in a revealed way, like a mugger. That's another prohibition. Don't delay in paying your day laborers. If you have someone that does work for you and they're supposed to be paid every day, you cannot pay them late. You have to pay them right away. Don't curse a deaf person. Don't place a stumbling block before the blind. So if there's someone who's blind, you could... Just stick something in their path and we'll trip over it. But Rashi tells us this refers not only to actually tripping a blind person, but also anyone that is blind, quote unquote, to any area, they're ignorant of that area. Don't give them bad advice in which the recipient is blind to in a way that you'll benefit from it. So someone is not sure about this investment and you, and you could give them bad advice, but they'll never know. Don't give them such advice. Don't place a stumbling block before the blind. And that verse, which is verse 14, it concludes, You shall fear Hashem your God, I am Hashem. Meaning, Rashi tells us, that God, of course, knows what we're thinking. And therefore, even though other people don't know, He does know, and we cannot hide our true intentions from Him. Don't corrupt judgment, neither by favoring the poor, nor by favoring the rich. There may be someone who's rich and powerful. You may say, you know what? I kind of have to, as a judge, I have to kind of favor them because after all, they're rich and powerful. That, of course, is corruption. But even if I'm favoring the poor, the less fortunate, that too is corruption of judgment. And there's a very deep counterintuitive point here. When someone's poor, we may feel like there's an injustice here. Why is this person poor? And that person rich. In modern society, there's a term called income inequality, which seems to imply that in a fair world, there will be income equality. We don't believe that. We believe that the Almighty is in charge of determining what people get and how much they get. And therefore, when someone has a lot and his neighbor has a little, we say, well, that's the act of God. God determined who should have what and how much they should have. And therefore, me coming to right the wrong me coming to even the balance, me coming to create equality is in effect me saying, I don't believe in God. I'm rejecting what he did. He did something wrong, so to speak. I'm going to fix what is corrupted. 
And that's the problem. The problem is that I can't do that in a way that goes against the Torah because in effect what I'm doing when I try to right that wrong is that I'm rejecting God's oversight and God's justice. And the verse concludes, you should judge with righteousness. So don't pervert it, not this way, not that way, judge with righteousness. Rashi tells us this also means to judge other people favorably. If you see someone who's behaving in an ambiguous way and you could either view it charitably, that maybe they're doing something righteous, or you could you could judge them negatively, judge them favorably. Verse 16, you should not be a gossip monger among your people and don't stand idly when your brother's blood is being shed. I am Hashem. So this is referring to someone who speaks Lashon Hara, who speaks slander or gossip, who's a peddler of gossip, Larashi tells us, don't speak evil about other people and don't stand idly when your brother's blood is being shed. So Rashi tells us, what does that mean? If you see someone drowning or if you see someone being attacked by uh, by robbers, by animals, don't stand idly and do nothing. Try to save them. What is the connection between these two parts of the verse? So perhaps we could say that, of course, we are encouraged, we are exhorted to not speak Lashon to not speak evilly about other people. However, we cannot do that if our brother's blood is going to be shed, meaning that if someone's about to engage in a business relationship or even a marital relationship with another person, and we know damning information about the person that they're going to hitch their wagons to, we cannot stand idly when our brother's blood is being shed. We have to speak Lashon Hara. In that instance, we have to inform the party that this is probably a bad idea, this person's a crook, this person has bad character, whatever it may be, we cannot stand idly. In that instance, that's a time where we must share the negative information to prevent the catastrophe from happening. Don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall reprove your fellow and not bear sin because of him. So verse 17, really interesting verse here. Don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely reprove your fellow and don't bear a sin as a result of him. So what are these what is, so what does this mean? What does it mean to not hate your fellow? So the Talmud tells us it means don't go three days without speaking to someone. What does it mean to hate someone? It means the parameters of that are that if someone that you're normally accustomed to speaking to and you go three days and you don't speak to them for three days because you're mad at them, that already renders you someone who hates them. And that's a problem. You cannot hate your brother in your heart. But these three parts of this verse don't seem to really have a connection. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Reprove your brother and don't bear a sin as a result of that. Rashi tells us that not to bear a sin because of him means to not whiten their face publicly, not to, to not embarrass them. But the three portions of the verse don't seem to be connected. So there's an amazing Rambam in the Laws of Knowledge, chapter 6, law 5, where he connects these three parts of the verse in a very beautiful way. So he tells us the beginning part of the verse, don't hate your fellow, your fellow Israelite, your brethren in your heart. If you hate someone internally, then you are transgressing a prohibition. If someone, if I hate someone, but I tell him I hate you, maybe it's a problem, but I'm not actually transgressing this verse. It's only when I harbor the feelings of hatred, but I don't share it to them. And the Ram tells us, don't silently absorb the misdeeds of others 
We don't believe in turning the other cheek. No, when someone sins to you, don't just absorb it silently. In fact, you should respond. How do you respond? That's the next part of the verse. You shall reprove him, rebuke him. It's a mitzvah, second mitzvah, to inform them and say to them, why did you do this to me? Why did you sin to me in this manner? And if the person indeed accepts your rebuke and says, you know what, please forgive me, then, says the Ramam, don't be cruel, accept their apologies and forgive them. And then he goes on to elaborate on the parameters of rebuke. Once you see your friend sinning or going in an improper path, it is a mitzvah for you to restore them to the proper path and to inform them that they are sinning and they're sinning to themselves, in fact, with their evil deeds. However, how do you indeed rebuke your fellow? If you just run over to them and say, I think you're a terrible guy, you're you're acting so immorally, it's probably not going to be efficacious. Instead, says the Rambam, the first thing is that you have to rebuke them in private, just between you two. And you speak to them pleasantly, in a soft manner. And you explain to them that the only reason why I'm telling this is to you is for your own benefit, so that you should arrive to Olam Abba. And if they accept it, if they accept the rebuke, fantastic. But if not, you rebuke them a second time, a third time, you consistently rebuke it. And you're obligated, says the Ramam, to rebuke them until the person gets so sick of you and hits you and says, I will never change. Only at that point are you absolved from responsibility to rebuke them for their misdeeds. Now, what if someone has the ability to rebuke others, but they don't do it? Then, says the Rambam, again, quote from the Talmud, then you are complicit in their sin, and there's a portion of their sin that is ascribed to you. And then the Rambam brings in the third part of the verse. And he tells us that when you rebuke someone, don't do it in a way that you'll embarrass them. Don't whiten their face with shame when you embarrass them, because then you're trying to do a mitzvah, but in fact you're doing a sin because you're embarrassing your fellow by rebuking him either in a public way or in a way that's going to cause him pain. And don't give him a nickname. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us if you whiten your fellow's face publicly, you lose your portion in Olam Abba. He quotes the other Talmud that says that we cannot even embarrass someone, even if it means potentially giving up our own lives. We have to rebuke them in a sensitive way, in a respectful way, in a way that will actually prompt them to rectify their ways. What if the person is not capable of hearing your rebuke? Well, in that case, it's a mitzvah, it's a ways of the pious, says the Rambam, to forgive them silently, forgive them in your heart, and not rebuke them. So an amazing mitzvah here, and that is to not hate your fellow in your heart, but instead to try to resolve the underlying cause for that friction by telling them in a very gentle way, but maybe in a firm way as well, that their activities, that their actions are improper and to try to coach them to rectify their ways. Verse 18, maybe the most famous verse in the whole Torah, don't take revenge and don't bear a grudge against members of your people. You should love your fellow as yourself. I am Hashem. So first of all, the verse begins with two different words for revenge. To don't take revenge and don't bear a grudge. Rashi explains that these are two different kinds of revenge. The first kind of revenge is when someone does something bad to you, 
you do something bad to them in response. The second kind of revenge, which is bearing your grudge, is someone does something bad to you and you don't do something bad to them in response. You say to them, I'm not going to do something bad to you in response. I'm not like you. And that shows that even though you're not behaving in a vengeful manner, but you're still bearing your grudge, you're still angry at them, you haven't forgiven them. Both of them are prohibited by Torah law. Now, the commentaries tell us, so the Chinuch, for example, tells us, that revenge is illogical and lacks faith. Why? Someone does something bad to you. In essence, we believe that the Almighty allowed that to happen and maybe even caused that to happen. And therefore, the person does something bad to you and you think they're the perpetrator, but in reality, they're just the tool that God used to punish you. And therefore, if you get angry at that person, in effect, you're not taking the lesson that God's trying to convey to you and you're misattributing the source of your misery to the person when in fact God's trying to send you a message. So in effect, when someone takes revenge, it is a lack of faith because, because they don't realize that it's God who's acting, not that individual. That's one theme of this idea, not take revenge. The Rambam tells us something fascinating. He says, when someone does something bad to you and you take revenge, it's prohibited and it's a very terrible thing and you should forgive them because reality is that when someone does something bad to you in this world, this world after all, it's trivial. The only thing that really matters is the spiritual world, the world that we're trying to earn via our behavior. And therefore, it's not worthy for me to take revenge when someone does a bad to me here. Take revenge because then I'm ascribing value to this world. And the Kliyakar, one of the commentaries in the Torah, tells us an analogy, a, a parable of children. Children are playing. They're playing with blocks. They're playing with balls. And what happens, and this is common, I would say, in, in households with more than one child, one child builds a nice Lego edifice, letter of structure, and the other one comes and kicks it down. So what happens to the first child? They go crazy. They start crying. They, they, they start screaming. And they start getting violent, start fighting back. And he goes so as far as to say that if they had a weapon, they would shoot their brother. That's how angry they get. And the parent, of course, realizes, you know what? It wasn't nice what the child did to you, but it's not worthy, doesn't merit, doesn't justify that you go after and attack them, you hit them, you kill them even if you had a weapon. Because you realize that, you know, there's proportionality. This is a child's game, some Lego. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's something that you're playing with, but it's not the end of the world. That's what it's like with with us. You know, we're, we're like children, really, and with respect to God. God's our father, and we're like children. And we get consumed with this world. Someone does something bad to you. You know, they cheat you in business, whatever it may be. And we get so riled up and angry about it, but God's telling us we're like children with respect to him. This is all trivial. It doesn't really matter so much. It's not worthy to get so angry and to try to lash back at them. So two ways to understand this idea of what it means not to take revenge, even though we may be deeply inclined to do it. And revenge is a dish best served cold. And even the Messiah Sashram, the path of the just, the way of the upright tells us in chapter 11 that revenge is sweeter than honey. Still, it's prohibited and we should not do it. And the verse concludes, you shall love your fellow as yourself. Rashi quotes 
the saying of Rabbi Akiva, this is a major principle of Torah. The Talmud tells us, the book of Shabbos, page 31a, there was a potential convert, came to the great Hillel, I want to study all of Torah while balancing on one leg. He says to him, a reformulation of this verse, that the you hate, don't do to your fellow, which is again a reformulation of this verse. That's all of Torah. Everything else is commentary. So obviously there's something very important here being conveyed in this mitzvah. And of course there's a lot to talk about, but I think one of the most simple questions that we can ask is, well, I'm me and my neighbor, my fellow is someone else. How could I possibly love him as much as I love myself? Doesn't seem to be reasonable. So maybe there's a few ways to answer this. One of the ways is that when it says, love your fellow as yourself, it doesn't mean with the amount of quantity of love that you have to yourself, as much as yourself. It doesn't say as much as yourself. It says as yourself. And perhaps what it means is that just like when we have self-love, like all healthy people love themselves, they love themselves not because they were commanded to do so, not because there was a mitzvah to to do so, just simply they love themselves because they love themselves. Don't love your fellow and say, you know what? I really can't stand the guy. But the Torah says it's a mitzvah to love them and I'm going to love them. No, you have to create, you have to foster genuine love for your brother just as you love yourself. Not as much, but just for the same reasons why you love yourself, you should love your brethren, your fellow. Maybe a more advanced answer to this question is found in the Talmud. You know, again, this verse doesn't seem to have necessarily a flow to it. Don't take revenge. Love your fellow as yourself. What's the connection between the first and second halves of this verse? So the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud in the book of Nadarim tells us that it gives us an analogy. It gives us an analogy of a butcher. A butcher was cutting meat, hacking away with a knife, and... By mistake, the knife wielded in his right hand slashed at his left hand. So now his left hand is injured. So the left hand grabs the knife and goes and slashes the right hand. I'm going to get revenge. That's what the Talmud says. That's revenge. In reality, the whole Jewish people were like one body. And therefore, it's not logical. It's asinine for me to take revenge because I'm just causing more self-harm. The person did something bad to me, but does it make sense to take my right with the, the, take the, the knife now back in my right hand and go attack the other hand, the perpetrating hand? That's what it means to take revenge. When we're told to not take revenge, we're told to recognize that our brother is really a part of me. And according to that Talmud, there's a natural continuity in the verse. Don't take revenge. It's not logical to take revenge because you're all parts of one whole. Love your fellow as yourself because indeed on a soul level, you two are really two parts of one whole and therefore it makes sense to love your fellow as yourself because indeed they are part of you. An amazing insight from the Talmud. And then verse 19, you should observe my decrees. Don't mate your animal with another species. Don't plant your field with mixed seed and a garment that is a mixture of combined fibers. Don't mate for yourself. These are three forbidden mixtures. And Rashi tells us laws that don't necessarily make sense to us. Don't mix different species. Don't interbreed species. Don't plant different seeds next to each other. And don't wear garments woven out of wool and linen. 
There's a very interesting discussion here. The Rashi and the Ramban, Rashi seems to indicate that these mitzvos don't have a reason or, or at least not a reason that we could easily identify. And the Ramban says, of course, there is a reason, but some reasons are not revealed to us and some reasons are revealed to us. And the Ramban argues that when someone interbreeds species or fruits or vegetables, there's a reason for it. And he explains that the reason for not interbreeding is because, you know, when God created the world, he created with a certain amount of species and the species are supposed to replicate themselves and procreate and create new varieties of that same exact species. What happens when someone takes the horse, mates it with a donkey and creates the mule? In effect, what someone is saying is God did not create enough species when he created the world. I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to improve God's creation in Genesis. Of course, God did create a perfect world, and therefore the meaning behind these, or at least part of these mitzvos, is to not improve on God's creation and to recognize that his creation is perfect the way it was. Of course, we have to improve ourselves because the objective of creation, but not to create new species that God did not create. If he didn't create it, obviously, the function of the world can be accomplished without it. Verse 20 is a unusual and complicated case. It's talking about a woman who was a half-slave and half-freed, meaning she was a slave woman who was owned by two partners. One of them freed them. The other did not free them. And she gets married to a Jewish slave. So is this a complete marriage or an incomplete marriage? It's not a complete marriage because she's a, a mixed identity. And therefore, it talks about what if she were to commit adultery with another person, it would not have the same severity as a fully married woman because she's not fully married. In verse 23, we read about Arla. It's a three-year moratorium on fruits. You plant a fruit tree. For the first three years, you don't eat it. The fourth year's fruits must be eaten in Jerusalem. And then in verse 25, we read that it's a divine promise that you won't lose. Don't think that by refraining from the first three years of the produce, you're going to lose out. God promises that you're not going to lose out. Verse 26, a very interesting verse. It, lo tohlu al adam, don't eat over the blood. It's not clear what this means. Rashi tells us that there's many different meanings for this verse. And the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, tells us that this is an example of an inclusive verse, meaning one verse that has many different meanings. And the Talmud goes on to list six different laws that are derived from this one verse, don't eat upon the blood. Number one, if you kill an animal, but it is not yet dead, you cannot eat its meat, don't eat upon the blood. Number two, a sacrificial animal, if, if it has not completed the ritual processing, you cannot eat it. Number three, a Jewish court of law that has rendered a ruling a guilty verdict in a capital punishment case. They cannot eat the rest of the day. Don't eat upon the blood. In addition, we don't have a meal of consolation after someone has been executed in a Jewish court of law. And finally, this is the restriction. This is the Torah prohibition against behaving like a ben or behaving like a wayward rebellious son, a law that we'll read about in the book of Deuteronomy. 
The next verse tells us not to engage in sorcery, not to be superstitious, don't practice divination, don't believe in luck, or that certain times are auspicious. We read about the Torah's guidance to hair and beard maintenance. We're not allowed to round out the corners of our head, the idea of payas, that we leave uh, our side lots unshorn to not allow a contiguous line from our forehead to the back of our head and not to shave with a razor the five points of the beard. So, which is why if you want to shave and you want to do it according to halachic standards, you must use an electric shaver, meaning a, a shaver in which the blade does not touch the skin. Because if you do shave with a, an actual blade or a razor, then every single hair is a separate prohibition. Instead, we should use an electric shaver instead. We're told that we cannot cause a wound, a self-wound over the dead, not to make a tattoo. The Sephora, one of the commentaries, tells us that there's only one permanent side in our body, and that is, of course, the circumcision. To not give off your daughter for illicit activities, to have reverence for the temple, to not walk in with your shoes on or with dirty feet, to not seat the clairvoyance of the necromancers of Ov and Yedoni. These are different forms of necromancy. The Ov is someone who speaks out of his armpit. The Yedoni is someone who puts the bone of a certain animal into his mouth. The bone speaks for him. Uh, verse 32, to, to have reverence for old sages, to get up for them, for them uh, when they walk in the room. Uh, number 33, verse 33, don't tease the convert. Someone who joined our religion, we're told an additional mitzvah to love them and not to taunt them. And the commentaries note that, of course, all of our Jewish brethren we can't tease, but it's repeated twice for the convert because the convert doesn't have defenders. You know, they're, they're outsiders. They may feel like they don't really have a place and therefore the Torah has to be their defender. In addition, with a convert, who grew up with a different religion and they made the decision to join Judaism, they're liable to defect, to go back to their roots if they find their new religion inhospitable. So therefore we're told an additional warning to not alienate them. And in fact, we're told to empathize with them. We too were foreigners. We too were outsiders in the land of Egypt and therefore we should empathize with them. And in fact, this is not limited to someone who converts and joins our religion, but any sort of outsider, we all know the feeling of what it's like to be the odd man out, to be the new kid in the block, to be the new kid in the school, and we should identify with what those people are going through and empathize with them. Be honest in measurements. If you're selling someone a pound of fruits, make sure it's really a pound, not 0.98 pounds. And again, we're told, I am a Shemir God, even though other people may not necessarily be able to pick up on your cheating on your chicanery, Hashem knows, He knows, the Almighty knows, and therefore He will exact retribution if we cheat in a way that He could find out about it, meaning if we cheat in any way. Chapter 20 is dedicated to the punishments of various sins, and a general precept of Torah is that for anyone to be punished, they have to have A, a transgression, meaning the verse tells that this is prohibited and there has to be an additional verse or additional insinuation or implication in the verse of the nature of the punishment. So it begins with the molach. Molach, we read about last week, that's someone who offers their children to the idol. 
We have to pursue them. God will pursue them. We're told the punishment for necromancy. Uh, we're told the punishment of cursing your parents, even if your parent are, has been deceased. Cursing them is a capital offense. Adultery is a capital offense. Uh, all the various prohibited sexual unions and their punishment. It talks about bestiality, that God forbid if someone sleeps with an animal, both the perpetrator and the animal are put to death. Why is the animal put to death? After all, the animal has no free will. So if the person sinned, why did the animal sin? So Rashi quotes the Talmud that the reason why we kill the animals because the animal caused a stumbling block for the person. And therefore, Rashi tells us an animal does not have any free will, yet it is punished if it causes others to sin. How much more so must we be careful? We do have free will. We have to make sure that we don't cause other people to sin. The Talmud adds an additional reason as to why the animal is executed in a case where a human decided to do the egregious sin of sleeping with it, and that is the reason why we kill the animal is to prevent additional shame for the perpetrator. The person may have committed a very shameful and egregious sin, and they're executed for it, but every time that animal walks down the block, everyone reinvokes their sin. And that's punishment that they're not deserving of, and therefore that punishment they don't get. And after listing all the forbidden relationships, it once again reverts back to the theme of the end of last week's parasha, you shall observe all my decrees and all my ordinances and perform them. Then, if you observe the law, the land to which I will bring you will not disgorge you. Do not follow the traditions of the nations that I expel from before you. They did all these things. I was disgusted with them and the land vomited them out. You too, I'm telling you, you're going to inherit the land. I'm going to give it to you, a land flowing with milk and honey. But you have to be separate. You have to be distinct from the ways of those other people. You should be distinguished between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean. Don't render your souls abominable through such animals and birds. Don't eat non-kosher and be separate from the nations. There's an interesting Rashi here in verse 26. The verse says, you shall be holy for me, for I, Hashem, am holy. I have separated you from the people to be mine. There's a very interesting Rashi here, a very interesting conversation here. Rashi quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that a person should not say, I'm disgusted by non-kosher food. I don't want to wear shotness. Instead, what they should say is, you know what? I'm sure pork is delicious. I'm sure bacon's delicious. But I'm sorry, I cannot have it because the Almighty forbade it for me. Very interesting idea. Should we be desirous of cheeseburgers or should we be disgusted by it? Here we're told that we should be desirous and say, you know what? We have a desire but it's not for us because the Almighty forbade it for us. The Rambam, in his introduction to the book of Pirkei Avos, the chapters of the fathers, he tells us that it really depends. With laws that we don't know the reason for them, like forbidden foods, wearing shotness, etc., those things we have to say, you know what, we're desirous of it, but we can't do it because God said no. Whereas by laws that make sense to us, 
laws like the seven Noahide laws that we would obey, even if God did not tell us about them, those things we have to be disgusted by. We can't say, oh, I really want to steal. I really want to murder. I really want to do things that are that are evil and immoral by any society, those things we should not be desirous of. Thank you for listening. Again, the email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I look forward to studying next week's Parsha, Parsha's Emor, together with you all.